You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the 37th Psalm. The 37th Psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in Yahweh and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but Yahweh upholds the righteous. Yahweh knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of Yahweh are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by Yahweh when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for Yahweh upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So you shall dwell forever. For Yahweh loves justice and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. 
The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Yahweh will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for Yahweh and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. Yahweh helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us our anxieties, our fears, our worries, our fretting whenever we look at the prosperity and the plans of the wicked. And I pray this morning, by your holy word, we would hear your laughter at all their schemes. And it would build our faith and confidence. And we would look to your promises. And we would rest in you. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. While it's impossible to miss the message of this psalm as it is hammered home again and again. Yet, I think there are four keys that if we had them in hand, they five keys... Four or five, we'll, I'll, find, I'll remember in a minute. There, there are these keys that if we have them in hand, they'll unlock the, the full glory and beauty of the psalm uh, in a much more profound way with us if we go with these keys in hand. So the first key, and there are five, the first key we need to have in hand is an understanding of the problem that's being addressed here. This psalm is a theodicy. The theodicy is an explanation to what theologians often refer to as the problem of evil. Specifically here, this psalm is addressing the prosperity of the wicked. Theodicy is a justification of the judge's justice and justness. The problem that's being addressed with this psalm was set up for you by the first psalm where David the author of that psalm, excuse me, says that the righteous are like an oak, if you will. They're like a tree planted by the streams of water. And the wicked are like chaff, easily carried away. But here, David says, I've seen the wicked spreading out like a green laurel tree, verse 25. And it appears as though it's the righteous who are easily carried away. The second key to have in hand is to realize that this is a wisdom psalm. The impact of that, I think, can be brought into full relief if you compare the 37th psalm with the 73rd psalm. It should be easy to remember. Those two go hand in hand in so many ways. They're both addressing the same problem, but 
Whereas this psalm is a wisdom psalm, the 73rd psalm is a psalm of testimony. There, the, the, the psalmist is speaking from his experience. He opens up saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this is a wisdom psalm. Psalm 73 is a psalm of testimony. In Psalm 73, Asaph testifies. Here, David instructs. Both of them have the psalmist addressing man. So both of them are a bit atypical from the way we, we think of the psalms. Neither one is God being addressed. In both of them, man is being addressed. But in one, whereas the individual is testifying to his experience, here, David is instructing you in wisdom. He speaks as a wizened sage. Verse 25, I have been young and now am old. One scholar has said that this psalm is so steeped in the wisdom tradition that it could easily find its place in the book of Proverbs. If someone was just reading it, you might think that they're reading from Proverbs and not from the Psalms. The third key to take in hand is to realize that this psalm is an acrostic. It's the final one of four that we encounter in the first book of the Psalms. The other four of the eight in the entire Psalter being located in that last book. In most cases, each successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a double verse dedicated to it. A couple of letters have more than that, and one letter is omitted. But overall, that's the structure. And that alphabetical structure really lends itself to the proverbial nature, content of this psalm. Thought is not so much expanded on and developed as it's returned to again and again. But combining all the keys that we've accumulated so far, recognize this. What you have with this psalm is the ABCs of a theodicy. It's a kind of memorable catechism to answer that profound question. Why do the wicked prosper? But there is still a fourth key that does indicate some degree of structure to this psalm. There are these repeated thoughts and words and phrases that you see again and again, but there are, there's a pair of them that are always together. Verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. Verse 22, those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. Verses 28 and 29. The children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will, be, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Verse 38. Transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The, the righteous will inherit the land. The wicked Cut off. And that refrain appears near the end or at the very end of each stanza, marking it off. 
And that brings us to the final key and what I think is the most important one, and that is this motif of being cut off and inheriting the land. The land itself being the most important thing, I think, to recognizing the significance of what David is speaking of here. Whenever God made man, He made him from the dirt, and He put dirt under His feet. He made him a steward of a domain. Michael Horton has referred to man as the marvel of ensouled dust. But we're not only ensouled dust, we are empowered dust. We are entrusted dust. Steward kings, vassal kings under the absolute sovereign. And with man's fall, his kingdom fell with him under the curse. But as God redeems Abraham, He makes a promise to him and his descendants of an eternal inheritance. An inheritance that is to be perpetually theirs. A land of milk and honey. A land of blessedness and peace. A land where he would again dwell with them. An Eden. Listen to how the Abrahamic covenant sheds light on this psalm. See, all the, all the fretting and anxiety that's being dealt with in this psalm is in concern for the promises of God, this land. Genesis 12, 1-3. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 17, 7-8. I will establish my covenant between you and me and your off, me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Land is promised to them, and they're told that they will be blessed such that the entire world will be blessed and cursed in reference to them. And so you see, it's the very seeming contradiction of all of this that David is giving wisdom to. It does not look like the righteous come into their inheritance. The wicked don't seem to be cursed in their opposition to the righteous. Instead, they seem to be the ones that grab up the inheritance of the saints. It's this seeming contradiction that the wizened David speaks to here. And he opens with this wise counsel in verses 1 through 11 that sets the tone for the entire psalm. The opening commands that you hear here, hear here, will carry through. They'll resonate throughout the remainder. And what a number of commands there are. These commands make this first stanza stand apart. 
they unite it, that these commands that you see here, they recur and they, they pull this whole psalm together. And yet, they make the first stanza stand apart because nowhere else are they so concentrated. You have 15 commands in 11 verses, 12 of them unique. And yet, don't you sense how harmonious all these commands are? Don't you sense that with this this wide number of, of commands, David is really getting at one thing. You begin to sense how singular a thing obedience is. And it involves this singleness of heart and devotion and trust in Yahweh in all things. The first command is the most repeated in this first stanza. The most emphatic really brings out the problem that's being addressed. Fret not. Verses 1, 7, and 8. Fret not. In Matthew 6, Jesus commands us, do not be anxious. But here, David is zeroing in on a particular kind of anxiety and worry. And it's one that we can find especially easy to justify. Fretting because of the prosperity of the wicked. Consider all the fretting carried on by Christians in light of the past election. All the worry that happens in regard to wars, economics, Entertainment, culture, politics, even in the spheres of of churches and denominations. All the kind of fretting and worrying, not in spite of, but precisely because we view the world in the way that the Psalms instruct us to, seeing this dichotomy between the righteous and the wicked. And seeing it precisely in those terms, seeing the prosperity of the wicked, we can then justify that kind of fretting because we know that's not the way things should be. Even whenever we understand and precisely because we understand the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we fret and we use that truth to justify our fretting. If we see this dichotomy and it worries us, we're half blind. David wants to to open the other eye with wisdom here. But before, before we get any kind of reasoning that underlies why we should obey this command, is it not enough simply to hear your omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Lord say, fret not. Just don't. Second command, be not envious of wrongdoers. And now this command stings more. Fret not. I I do that. Convicted. But be not envious of evildoers. Well, that begins to dig underneath why I fret. Because there's envy. And the envy can even happen for in regards to a good thing, a thing promised to us, as I believe it is here. 
What are they envying? It seems like they're the ones who are enjoying what is promised to the saints. When we fret, our fretting speaks to envying. Our envy speaks to what we value. And what we value can so often be something that's good, something that God has given to His people to be enjoyed, something that He's promised to them. But what fretting reveals is a misplaced priority. What this envying reveals is a misplaced priority that we begin to value the gift over the giver. We've forgotten the truths of the gospel and that the supreme blessedness that the Son brings us into is eternal life, which is the knowledge of our triune God. Third command, second most repeated in this first section, flip side of fretting, trust Yahweh, verses 3 and 5. Don't fret concerning the wicked and their plans and their schemes. Trust Yahweh. Fourth, we're commanded to be, to, verse 3, we're commanded to do good. Fretting dismisses obedience as vanity. We're worried. It looks as if they're going to succeed. We will fail, so why obey? Fretting dismisses obedience as vanity. Faith trusts that God's ways are best. Fifth, this command in verse 3, to dwell in the land. Now, to understand how that relates to everything else that's been said, consider the patriarchs living out their days as sojourners in a land that's been promised to them. Dwell in the land is an act of faith. It's, it's an expression of, I'm not going to fret, just going to obey, do good. Think of the constant threats that Judah and Israel faced in the land of promise. Dwell in the land. Really see this, consider Naomi, well, her, her family's actions during the famine. Dwell in the land. Six, the ESV gives the command, befriend faithfulness. I think the alter, alternate translations that the ESV offers here are better. You have either feed on faithfulness or find safe pasture. But better yet, I think, is the New American Standard in this instance, which has cultivate faithfulness. The verb means to uh, shepherd or to foster growth. That's the idea. Cultivate faithfulness. And you see how those two commands go together now, don't you? Dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness. Your dwelling in the land is to be this expression of cultivating faithfulness, covenant fidelity, and obedience to your Lord being where He has commanded you to be. Dwell in the land. Do not fret. Trust Yahweh. Befriend faithfulness. No, cultivate faithfulness. And seventh, delight in Yahweh. And this command has troubled many, not so much because of the command, delight in Yahweh, because the promise attached to it. He will give you the desires of your heart. That sounds a bit reckless. The command only troubles if you fail to take time and reflect on it. 
if you, if you delight in that which is most delightful, what is going to be the desire of your heart? Consider the 73rd Psalm, where Asaph begins envying the wicked. But then he considers their end. And as he's made this turn, he makes this expression. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Spurgeon preached, The worldly person says, I thought religion was all self-denial. I never imagined that in loving God, we could have our desires. I thought godliness consisted in killing, destroying, and keeping back our desires. He goes on, now it is true that religion is self-denial, Spurgeon says. It is equally true that it is not self-denial. Christians have two selves. There's the old self. And there they do deny the flesh with its affections and lusts. But there is a new self, a newborn spirit, a new man in Christ Jesus. Our religion does not consist in any way in self-denial there. No, let it have the full swing of its wishes and desires. For all it can wish for, all it can pant after, all it can long to enjoy When I hear persons say, my religion consists in some things I must do, and in some things that I must not do, I reply, mine consists in things I love to do, and in avoiding things I hate and would scorn to do. I feel no chains in my religion, for I am free, and no one is more free. He who fears God and is holy God's servant has no chains about him. He may live as he likes, for he likes to live as he ought. He may have his full desires, for his desires are holy, heavenly, and divine. He may take the full range of the utmost capacity of his wishes and desires and have all he needs and all he wishes, for God has given him the promise and God will give him the fulfillment of it. But I think that's one just one step in rightly dealing with the concern that you would have with this command and its promise. What's important is to recognize what would be the desires David is speaking in reference to here. Well, they would be the desires for that which has been promised by God. The covenant blessings in the land. And you see, what David is doing here is putting things back in their proper place. You want the land. Make this your concern. Delight yourself in Yahweh. And all that He's promised is certain and sure. Eighth, we're commanded to commit our ways to Yahweh, verse 5. It's another way of saying trust Yahweh. But it brings out this, that trusting Yahweh is not something you just do in your chest. It's something you do with your feet. It's a way of life. It's a way of walking. The ninth and tenth commands we'll take together. Be still before Yahweh and wait patiently for Him. Verse 7. This idea of being still has taken on a mystical, experiential connotation in most evangelical circles. 
in reference to your quiet time and your prayer time, be still and know that He is God. And you're waiting and you hear the still, small voice and God speaks to you and you have comfort and assurance and peace. There's nothing of that here. The idea of this command, be still, is not that you're still so that you might hear the Word of God. What's happening here is you've heard the Word of God. He speaks. And for that reason, you're still. You wait. You're patient. You don't fret. That's the idea. Being still is in contrast to fretting and frantic activity. Be still and wait patiently for Him. What it means to not be still, to frantically fret, is made clear by the 11th and 12th commands, which we'll also take together. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Those are expressions of fretting. They are expressions of unbelief and distrust. God is not going to do anything about this. I need to take matters into my own hands. He doesn't believe that vengeance is God's, that He can be trusted for justice. So it takes on that dress itself. This is the kind of evil that fretting tends to. Now our God is so good and kind that He not only gives us these commands, that's enough. But he gives promises that empower and propel obedience to these commands. Soon enough, he promises, the wicked will be like grass. Verse 2. Our lives are vapors. Don't judge God's epic tale by your measly paragraph. God will give you the desires of your heart, verse 4. He will act, verse 5. The righteous will be vindicated, verse 6. The evildoers will be cut off. They will have no inheritance in the land of promise, but those who wait for Yahweh, they'll inherit the land, verse 9. Soon you will look for the wicked and you cannot find him. He can't be found, verse 10, whereas the meek, the meek will inherit the earth. Now, does that sound familiar? These are the words of our Lord in Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This promise, saints, this promise concerning land and an inheritance, a place of, of perfect peace and delight, this Eden, this promise is yours. In Christ. Paul, after he's made clear that it is those of faith who are the true children of Abraham and heirs of the promise, goes on to say in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Everything that this psalm holds out and more, plus all the fullness that we now have a clearer picture of as it's come to light in the light of Christ, all of this that's held forth here and more is yours in Christ, 
saints. It's yours. It's secure by the blood of Christ. So do not fret. Do not be envious. Trust your Lord Jesus Christ. Do good. Live out your days on earth cultivating faithfulness as a good steward of all that He's entrusted to you. Delight yourself in the triune God. Commit your ways to Him. Be still. Wait for Yahweh. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not. In a little while the wicked will be no more. But you, the meek, those who need not assert themselves because they are confident in their God and can be still, you will inherit the earth. That is the thrust of this psalm. The remainder of it simply reinforces these commands, bolsters our obedience to them by elaborating on these promises, opening our eyes to see through the fog. And so in light of this, let's reevaluate the wicked of the, the prosperity of the wicked, verses 12 through 22, this wisdom concerning the futility of the wicked. Yes, they plot against the righteous, verses 12 through 15, but his plans are inverted. By his plans, he does not destroy the righteous, he destroys himself. His own sword pierces him. And our Lord looks on all of this and he laughs. When you look out at the prosperity of the wicked and their plans and their schemes gathering like an ominous thunderstorm, look up and see your heavenly Father and hear His genuine laugh and let it wash over you like sunshine and a cool breeze and assure you that that threat is pathetically weak in comparison to His omnipotent strength. No, His laughter is no bluff. It's no bravado. It's no display. It's no show. It, the rebellion against Him, against His King, against His people, it is truly laughable. Realize that this laughter is the very same laughter that's being spoken of in the second psalm. Whenever the, right, the wicked assert themselves against Yahweh's rule and the rule of His king. Here, they attack the king's subjects. Which is an attack on the king himself. And to this, our God responds with laughter. And know also that your little is better than all their abundance collectively. Verses 16 and 17. Spurgeon comments, We would sooner hunger with John than feast with Herod. Better scant fare with the prophets in Obadiah's cave than riot with the priest of Baal. Yes, John lost his head. Herod lost his soul. John came into an eternal inheritance. Herod into eternal torment. Why is the little of the righteous better than the abundance of the wicked? Verse 17, because God will break the arms of the wicked. But He upholds the hand of the righteous. 
It doesn't matter how you stand with men, but how you stand with God. And how do we stand with God? Saints, we have this treasury with God, Christ. That is how we stand with God. Don't think the wicked prosper. They are poor, bankrupt before God. Don't fret because of them. Pity them. They don't have an abundance. They have nothing before the God of heaven. And you have Christ. Let no child of God think he is poor. Verses 18 through 20, you have two promises. The provision of the righteous and the perishing of the wicked. Verse 18, Yahweh knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. There may be little, but there is so often enough. And in the midst of hard times, is it not the case that the righteous, precisely because of their righteousness, and God's ways simply are are best, that the righteous often fare better than the wicked in the hardest of times? Think of Elijah in the days of famine, and how the ravens provided for him, and the widow's oil and her flour that lasted until there was rain. But the glory of the wicked we're told, is like that of a pasture, green and then soon fading. It's like smoke, verse 20. Now, in light of this reflection on the wealth and and poverty of the righteous and the wicked, David makes an observation in verses 21 and 22. The wicked borrows but does not give back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The wicked take and don't give back. The righteous are generous. And the reason they do this, for, because, those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land. You see the promise is what propels their obedience. Why do the righteous give? Because those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land, but those cursed by Him shall be cut off. The future liberates the righteous to give. And they don't work it out. But there is a testimony. Creation is speaking to the wicked that they lie under the wrath of God. So the same promise propels the righteous to give and it moves the wicked to grab. Why do they scheme so? Because their time is short and creation is testifying that they stand under the wrath of God. Then... Looking at verses 23 through 29, we see some wisdom concerning the surety of the righteous. So the previous section opens up by reflecting on the wicked and their futility. This one looks at the righteous and their stability. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by Yahweh when he delights in his way. Yes, but what about when I don't delight in his way? What about when I do fret? What about when I fail to trust? What about when I stumble? Though he fall. He shall not be cast headlong. Why? For Yahweh upholds 
his hand. Your feet are clumsy, but your father's grip is sure. You will fall. Remember the one who is speaking here. You will fall. But our Lord's grip is steady and sure. You're not being called on in this psalm to trust your feet. You're being called on to trust His hand. Further, David offers this testimony. Through his accumulated years, he has not seen the righteous forsaken. Verse 25. This is not a message of prosperity and ease though. Consider the one who is speaking. David was not born in a palace. Yes, he grew up into one. But whenever he grew up into one, that's whenever many of his greatest trials came. If his blessings were greater than yours, so too were his trials. And reflecting on his hard but blessed years, he says, I've not seen the righteous forsaken. Hear so wise unto king speak these words. The righteous will be preserved. The wicked cut off. In light of all this, he calls for those who have fallen, who are stumbling, who are fretting. Turn from your evil and do good, knowing this. The righteous will dwell forever, verse 27. The reason they can be confident of this is God's character, God's promise, verse 28. He loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. Who is He? He's the God of righteousness and holiness and justice. And He's the covenant God of His people. He will not forsake them. The righteous will be preserved and inherit the land. The wicked cut off, verses 28 and 29. And then you have this wisdom concerning the ways of the righteous and the wicked in verses 30 and 34. Their present ways. Verses 30 and 32 The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, his tongue speaks justice, the law of God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. Now the wicked, the wicked watches for the righteous, seeks to put him to death. And this is followed by the promise that God will not abandon his righteous to the power of the wicked or let them be condemned when brought to trial. And then you have, once again, This spoken of in reference to the land. Wait for Yahweh. Keep His way, for He will exalt you to inherit the land. And you will look on when the wicked are cut off. And that brings us to this final stanza where the future of the righteous and the wicked is foreseen. It's contrasted. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself out like a green laurel tree. But he passed away. He's nowhere to be found. He's destroyed. And concerning this, this last stanza, while we're told that the, right, the, the wicked are cut off from the land, verse 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off, there's no mention of the land in reference to the righteous in this last stanza. But if the future of the wicked involves being cut off from covenant and all its blessings in the land then the future that's being spoken of concerning the righteous clearly is then in reference to the covenant and blessedness and the land. 
And the reason all this comes to the righteous is because they seek refuge in Yahweh. They trust Him. Yahweh helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. If you are here and you recognize you're a sinner and you're one of the wicked and you sit under the wrath of God, the way you come into the blessedness that's being spoken of here is not by making yourself righteous. It's by taking refuge in the righteous one so that His righteousness is counted to you in Christ. Now with this foreseen future, I think this psalm is one of the strongest testimonies in the Old Testament that the Old Testament saints believed in the resurrection. Because none of this makes sense under the sun. Yeah, the wicked perish, but they're also born. In fact, everyone that's born is born one of them. So what does it matter if a few more are killed off and perish? Another will rise to take his place. But if we will look over the sun, in terms of the resurrection, this looks very different. Abraham himself looked forward in faith to this promise. Hebrews 11, 9-10 tells us, By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Reflecting on those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, on the very earth that was promised to them, they recognized they were strangers and exiles because the earth as it was, was not the earth that was promised to them. It was not the earth whose designer and builder was God, having made all things new. For people who speak thus, Hebrews goes on to say, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Saints, the only reason we need a theodicy is not because of some puzzle in our mind that we need to solve, but some kind of distress in our soul to which we simply need to hear the Word of God. The reason we want a theodicy, an explanation to the problem of evil, is simply because we're so short-sighted. Look to the promises. Whenever you look at the problem of evil, when you look at the prosperity of the wicked, yes, you need information, but it's not to solve the conundrum you've got going on in your noggin. You need to hear the promises of God. Fret not. Trust Yahweh. And if that's not enough for you, Remind yourself of who is speaking here. I think perhaps 
the most potent words in this psalm are the superscription that opened it. Of David. This is not the song of a man who grew up in ease. And whenever he came to a position of grandeur, it just meant grander trials and tribulations. The wicked plotted against him consistently. As he was lifted higher, he was an easier target. His blessings were bigger, his trials were better, bigger. And he stumbled. But God held his hand. And if Israel could have taken such comfort hearing their king speak these wise words. Saints, how much more can we take comfort hearing our king say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Our Lord came to His inheritance through suffering and sorrow. Through flogging and thorns and ridicule. Through a cross and resurrection. He is our forerunner, we're told. We follow in His steps. To follow Him, we take up our cross. But whenever we take up the cross, we know resurrection is certain on the other side. He trusted. He didn't fret. He committed his way to the Lord. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And because of that cross, because on that cross, he Rectified the real problem of evil. How can a holy God love sinful man, redeeming and extending such promises? How can he be just and the justifier of the ungodly? Because he put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood to redeem sinners and satisfy his wrath against our sins. Because that is our treasury, saints, in which we trust and reside. Our inheritance is sure. You've already received the down payment of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. He's good on His promises. Don't fret. Be still. Trust your King. And his sage counsel. And trust the omnipotent, perfectly wise, sovereign rule of his father. And know that on the other side of the cross. Is resurrection and an inheritance forevermore. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are unworthy sinners, not deserving to hear such 
blessed and beautiful truths. Much less for all that's promised in them to be ours in Christ. And how often we have failed. Having having come to know your redeeming grace and your covenant love. We fail. We stumble. We fret. We're frantic. We don't believe. And we don't trust. But Father, our hope... Our hope today is that though our flesh fail, though it be weak, you are our hope. You are our portion. You are our inheritance. Your hand on us is sure. You will not lose any that you've purchased by the blood of Christ. And those purchased by that blood will lose nothing of all that is promised them in Christ. And so may that truth be be brought home by your Spirit now. To move us to render unto you what you are worthy of. May it propel our obedience, empower our obedience. So that we walk Following the forerunner of our faith. Looking forward. Delighting in you. Knowing the joy that lies on the other side of this short pilgrimage. In the strong name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.